Amen. If you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to turn with me to John chapter 15. John 15, beginning in verse 18. You can find that on page 958 of the Pew Bibles. Again, it's John 15, beginning in verse 18. Page 958 of the Pew Bibles. If you don't own a good Bible, please take that as our gift to you this morning. We're jumping back into what has been called Jesus' farewell discourse. Uh, Thus far, we have been met with incredible promises from Christ. Uh, Jesus has left us, yes, but to go and to prepare a place for us with the Father, our forever home. And if he's gone to do that, he tells us he will come again for us so that where he is, we will be also. Jesus wants us to be with him. So badly, in fact, that in his bodily absence, he has sent us the gift of the Holy Spirit to dwell with us, bringing to us the presence of the triune God. Okay, but God is not just with us, he's in us. We mutually indwell one another in such a way that all that belongs to Jesus becomes ours. Christ shares with us all that is his. Because he lives, we live. Because he's loved, we're loved. Because he has peace, we have peace. Because he has joy, we have joy. Because he has wisdom, so do we. We have become so intertwined with Christ in the eyes of God that God gives us all that the Son deserves. He loves us. We've become so intertwined with Christ in the eyes of God that he gives us all that the Son deserves. He loves us. There's a flip side to this as well. We have become so intertwined with Christ in the eyes of the world that it gives us all that it thinks the Son deserves. It hates us. You see, Christ has rescued us from the world while keeping us still in it. He has left us in a place that is not our home. And in fact, he leaves us in the world in such a way that it should be obvious to all that we do not belong here. We're not like vines on a branch in a garden. We're like vines on a branch in a wasteland. Jesus calls us out but leaves us in such that those who are still of the world hate us. As we'll see in our text, they hate us because we follow a different king. They hate us because we live differently. They hate us because we preach a different message. You see, there's two sides to this. In making us the object of heaven's love, Jesus has also made us the object of the world's hate. You cannot have one without the other. Christ Jesus shares with us all that is his. John chapter 15, beginning in verse 18, if you are able, I will invite you to stand with me for the reading of Holy Scripture. This is Christ speaking. If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But they will do all these things to you on account of my name because they don't know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now they have no excuse for sin. The one who hates me also hates my father. 
If I had not done the works among them that no one else has done, they would not be guilty of sin. Now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But this happened so that the statement written in their law might be fulfilled. They hated me for no reason. When the counselor comes, the one I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will testify about me. You also will testify because you have been with me from the beginning. I have told you these things to keep you from stumbling. They will ban you from the synagogues. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering service to God. They will do these things because they haven't known the Father or me. But I have told you these things so that when their time comes, you'll remember I told them to you. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You can be seated. Have you ever done something you were not prepared for? Okay, I don't, I don't mean taking a test you didn't study for. Sometimes caffeine and cramming won't make up for what you've not done. I mean you signed up for something that you were not sufficiently warned about. Okay, the recruiter was a little fuzzy on the time commitment. The loan officer a little sketchy on the details. You signed up for something you were not sufficiently warned about. You didn't realize a grad school would be this hard. Marriage would be this difficult. Parenting would be this stressful. Fostering would come with this much heartache. Teaching at this kind of school would come with that much pain. That this career would be that demanding. If you ever signed up for something you were not sufficiently warned about, one of the great kindnesses you can do for someone as you are recruiting them toward a job or a role or a task is to give them a sober picture of what's required. We all want to see the compensation package, of course, but you also need to know what it will cost you. What's it going to cost you in return? Jesus has been preparing his disciples for his death and departure. He spent most of his time explaining what's going on and what it means for us. It's mostly been promises. To see the Son is to see the Father. To have the Son is to have the only way to the Father. His death makes a life for us. Jesus is doing all of this in love and he expects us to love one another in return. There's a noticeable shift here in language in John 15. Jesus is continuing to prepare us for what awaits. And now by explaining the cost of discipleship. There's a cost of following Jesus. Now to be clear, the gospel is free. God forgives us of our sins. He gives us life in Jesus as a gift. God doesn't save us because we're good or worth saving for that matter. He's not paying us what is owed. No, God in the riches of his mercy has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. He has forgiven us and given us life in Christ as a gift, but it comes with natural consequences. Following Jesus is costly. And so Christ in his kindness He warns us about what we should expect if we intend to follow him. Our big idea this morning, it's quite simple. If you are a follower of Christ, the world hates you. Merry Christmas. If you are a follower of Christ, the world 
hates you. Not will hate you, not might hate you should you do something. If you are a follower of Christ, the world, the system, the people that are under the influence of Jesus, they hate you. And Jesus in our text gives us three reasons why. Three reasons why the world hates us. They hate us because of our master, our morals, and our message. The world hates us because of our master, our morals, and our message. First, the world hates us because of our master. Last week, we were comforted by the thought that the son loves us similar to the way that the father loves him. Now we're sobered by the reality that the world hates us similar to the way that it hates God. You cannot have one without the other. We, the people called in love, called to a community of love, are left in a world that hates both us and God. We start in verse 18. Jesus says, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. Okay, don't mistake the if here. Jesus is clear at the end of verse 20, and I quote, the world hates you. Hence our big idea, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the world hates you. This if is more like when. When you find yourself being hated by the world, understand this. Be comforted by this reality even. It hated me first. Jesus was hated first. This is a hatred that precedes the incarnation. It has its roots in the garden. In Genesis chapter 3, in cursing the serpent, God said, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. The serpent has been on a quest since the garden to stamp out the seed of the woman, which is the messianic line. Christ is the obstacle to all of Satan's goals, which is to keep God from saving his people to keep God from being glorified in the world. He has made it his aim to wage war against God and us. Jesus was hated first by the world and hated most. We're only despised, in fact, verse 21, because of the name of Christ. We have been baptized into him in such a way that all that is his becomes ours. The hatred is directed to him that we receive. After a professional sports team wins a championship, there's a parade. Okay, we only know this in Memphis because we see it on TV. Thousands, if not tens of thousands, if not more people will line up to celebrate their team and their victory. So last year in the NFL, the Kansas City Chiefs, I was pausing for a few little, I know we got some fans in here. Kansas City Chiefs won. Now if you're watching the camera and you, you spend most of your time gazing at the stars. Right, Mahomes, Tariq, Kelsey, this is last year. The whole team is in the parade. There's some backup rookie who didn't play a single minute in the Super Bowl, barely got his picture on the website. He's in the parade receiving the same level of glory. No one's cheering for him in particular, and yet because he's part of the team, part of the parade, he receives the same level of applaud. It's directed to the team, and so it's directed to him. Okay, the world hates Christ first. It directs it's hatred toward him, but make no mistake, it hates us still. Because we have become part of him, so to speak, branches on the vine. Hatred is directed at him, and if we are connected to him, it's directed at us. Most of us cannot stand the idea of being disliked. 
right? Just the idea that there's someone out there that for some reason dislikes us. It gets under our skin, okay? If being loved or loving someone is being drawn toward them and desiring their good, if its highest expression is shown in your willingness to die for their life, hatred's the opposite. It's not being drawn toward them, it's being repulsed by them. It's not desiring their good but their harm. Its highest expression is showed in your willingness to put them to death. My life would be better if they died. We hate the idea of being hated. In one sense, this is very natural. God has made us to experience love and life and peace and joy. It's because of sin that there is hostility and chaos. But because of our flesh, this especially frustrates us. We want everyone to think as highly of us as we think of ourselves, which is pretty high. Brothers and sisters, if you want to be a faithful Christian, you must give up any notion that you can be loved by all. In Galatians 1.10, Paul is clear we can only please God or people. If we were still trying to please people, we would not, we would not be servants of Christ. You must choose between divine favor and worldly acceptance. One is cheap and fleeting and fatal, the other lavish and unending. We cannot have both. The world hates our master. It hates him first, but it also hates his servants. Look at verse 20. Jesus says, remember the word I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. Here Jesus is recalling what he said in John chapter 13. There in this act of love and extreme humility, Jesus condescends low and he washes his disciples' feet. He says there in verse 15, I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done. Then he tells us why. A servant is not greater than his master and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. From Jesus' morals to his message, he expects his servants to follow him, their Lord. This is what defines our relationship to him. If you're following Jesus, you must do as he does. If you don't do what he does, you're not following him. Okay, that's obvious. Jesus here adds another layer. If you're following him, if you're doing what he does, you should expect people to treat you the same way. If they're not, you're probably not doing what he did. You're probably then not following him. A servant is not greater than their master. Brothers and sisters, if we think we can avoid persecution, we must think we're better than our master. Jesus is granting no exemptions here. Verse 20, remember the word I spoke to you, his servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also, they will also persecute you. You see, it won't be enough for the world to hate us. This happens in the heart. They'll also persecute us. This happens with the hands. There is a boiling over of passion and disgust that ends with intentional harm. Notice how absolute Jesus is about this. The world hates him. The world persecuted him. They will hate us. They will persecute us. This is simply part of what it means to be a Christian as we're called to imitate the Lord. Maybe one of the most important things for us to grasp is that the cross of Jesus Christ is not simply the place where he acted on our behalf, though of course it is. It's also the place where Jesus models and gives shape to the Christian life. 
cross before crown, suffering for salvation. Part of following Jesus, Luke 9, 23, is daily carrying our cross. To state what's quite obvious, Jesus willingly laid down his life, yes, but he did not crucify himself. People did so in hatred. Jesus, in inviting us daily to die, is also inviting us to endure the world's hatred for him and like he did. No cross, no Christ. He tells us, if they hated me, they'll hate you. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Paul echoes this in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says, in fact, all, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We cannot follow the cross-bearing king and not join him in suffering any more than a car can go through a car wash without getting wet. It's how the car gets clean. This is how we follow Jesus. Now, because we live in a country that has historically been shaped by Christian values, not saying consistently, but it has been shaped by Christian values, we have been spared from the kinds of persecutions that Christians have faced all throughout the world, all throughout church history. And because we live in a historically affluent country, we're accustomed to comfort. This is why the prosperity gospel was birthed here. Because of both of these, verse 20 sounds odd. We're quicker to assume that if we're being opposed, we must be doing something wrong. Like if I'm sharing the gospel with my coworkers and they start disliking me, I must have crossed a line somewhere. I must be doing something cultish. Jesus seems to be saying that if we're not being opposed on any level, we're actually the ones doing something wrong. We might think we're following Christ, but if we're not hated for his name, we're so far behind him as he carries his cross that we're walking with and hiding in the crowd. How do you know if someone is following their master? Jesus tells us they look like, they act like, and they therefore are treated like their Lord. A servant is not greater than their master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Brothers and sisters, we should expect the world to treat us as they treated him. They hated him. They persecuted him. They will treat us like him. That's what Jesus seems to be getting at there in verse 20. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. We should expect them to respond to our ministry as they responded to his Then he presses in more deeply in verse 21 as to why they persecute us and him. He says, they'll do all this, all these things to you on account of my name because they don't know the one who sent me. This is the root of it. They don't know, they don't have a saving relationship with God, but it's not just a matter of uh, ignorance. It's moral, it's spiritual. Jesus makes this clear in verse 23. It's willful. The one who hates me also hates my father. They have heard the news of Christ that he's the son of God come to make a way to God and they've rejected it. They've seen his works, they've heard his word and they hate him. And because the son only says what he hears from the father because he only does what the father does, to reject the son is to reject the father. To hate him is to hate God. You see, the world's 
hatred of Jesus is not a personality mismatch. The world hates God because it wants to be free from his rule. It wants to determine its own morality. It wants nothing to do with his law. It doesn't want to hear of his judgment. It wants nothing of a salvation that's offered to them where they can't save themselves. Why does the world hate us? Because we have been so associated with God that we bear his name. We are his mouthpieces on earth. We are where he carries out his works. We obey and love and delight in his law. We have become his temple such that we carry his presence here. We, like Christ, reflect God. Oftentimes, revolutionaries in a country, they'll target their enemies' embassies. 1979, members of the Muslim student followers of the Imam's line. Okay, imagine that's your club, putting on a shirt. Muslim student followers of the Imam's line. 1979, they overran the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. They held 52 hostages for about a year and a half. These students, like many in Iran, understood that the U.S. was frustrating their attempts at revolution, and so they attacked the embassy. Why? It's the closest they could get to U.S. soil. The church is where God dwells and works and speaks on earth. Ephesians 1, it is the fullness of the one who fills all things. It's the closest that our enemies can get to wage their war in heaven. It's this. If they hate the Father, if they hate the Son, if they hate the Spirit who reveals both and indwells his people, they will hate us. Brothers and sisters, as strange as this sounds, this is actually meant to be a comfort to us. It's meant to be a comfort. You know when you're watching TV and a commercial pops up for some medicine? You have medicine for migraines. I pay attention to these. I get a lot of migraines. Side effects may include dizziness, fatigue, memory problems, drowsiness, confusion. I'm like, they just described a migraine. <laughs> then they go on. Depression, anxiety, chest pain, trouble sleeping, trouble breathing, bone problems, kidney failure, seizures, and just to round it off, and in rare cases, death. The side effects are worse than the thing. Right? The risks don't outpay the payoff. No comfort is provided. If you take it, you do so anxiously. You're checking one box as you start. Suffering for the name of Christ is not some adverse effect of his salvation. It's actually part of God's gift to us. Peter, who heard this, wrote elsewhere, 1 Peter chapter 4, Dear friends, don't be surprised... Don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. We shouldn't be surprised. There's nothing weird in being opposed. Jesus told us what will happen. He goes on, instead, rejoice. Rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, a meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name. How is persecution a gift? 
It allows us to share in what belongs to Jesus. It allows us to share in his holiness, in his calling, in his home. Suffering for Christ, in fact, is an assurance from God. It's God speaking to us that we do not belong here. That the last place we suffer will be here. That he has prepared glory for us. Suffering is actually a gift. The apostles understood this. Listen, it's how they responded in Acts chapter 5. Peter included, he's there. After they called on the apostles and had them flogged, they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And they released them. Then they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin rejoicing. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. Every day in the temple and in various homes, they continued teaching and preaching the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. The apostles, they understood that suffering for Christ is a gift, not because they're masochistic, but because they knew that it meant that God thought they were worthy enough to suffer for Jesus. You see, Christ suffered for the salvation of his people. He allows us to suffer for him so that that salvation might go forward to other people. It's also how he takes it and presses it more deeply into us. We could add to the effects that God brings about in our life as we suffer. It's part of the way that God prunes us to bear the fruit that he's appointed us for. That as the world hates us, we're given an opportunity to magnify the love of God. We're given opportunity to love our enemies just as God loved his enemies. That God is stripping away circumstantial joy. God is giving us the opportunity to experience abiding joy in Jesus. That as the world is pressing us in with chaos and hostility, we have the opportunity to experience peace that surpasses understanding. That as we're feeling weak, we have the opportunity to experience the power of God. And we're especially given the gift of assurance that this place is not our home. We're destined for a better land. If he left us to prepare it, he'll come again for us. Suffering reminds us that this place is not home. This brings us to our second consideration. The world hates us because of our master. The world also hates us because of our morals. The world hates us because of our morals. I'll be honest, morals doesn't fully grasp what I'm going for. It was the closest I could get with a, to a word that started with an M. The point here is that we're different than the world because we've been chosen for another one. This difference is rooted in God's election and it's demonstrated in how we live. John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit. Okay, we're chosen out of the world. We're not only destined for heaven, but we begin to reflect it now. But it's a kind of reflection that brings the world's hostility. We see this, especially in verse 19. Jesus says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Several of the commentaries that I read this week on this, kind of spanning the Christian tradition, the patristics, and then scholastics, the medieval scholastics, they use the same phrase to describe this verse. Like loves like. Like loves like. 
In leadership, this is often called the law of magnetism. We are drawn towards and we draw others in who are similar to us. On the flip side, we quite naturally dislike the other. If you want just a superficial test of this, just walk into a high school cafeteria to see how people are seated. Friend groups are typically marked off by similarity, be them cultural or ethnic or linguistic or extracurricular. Like is drawn to like. Well, what is the like that characterizes the world? What is being of the world like such that they would love you? John tells us, 1 John 2.16, that the things of the world are the lust of the eyes and the flesh. It's the boasting of one's possession. Paul tells us what the world is like, Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. It's about carrying out our fleshly desires and sinful thoughts under the power of Satan. You see, the world is characterized by sinful desire for what is forbidden and a bragging about doing it before God. The ruler of this world, in fact, has set things up in such a way that those who rebel against law, those who rebel against God are praised, and those who do not are hated. Like is drawn to like. Like is repelled by dislike. To take a painfully obvious example, those who maintain the Bible's teaching, the church's historic understanding of marriage as a union between a man and a woman, are being lambasted today in our culture as bigots. Just to give you a really trivial example, last week, North Dakota State University played a basketball game against Oak Hills Christian and beat them 108 to 14. That's not the persecution piece. (laughs) 14 points. NBC might have put together a team that could get 15. Okay, the score disparity caught the headlines. The internet, the lovely place that it is, found out that Oak Hills was Christian. They found out that they believe that marriage can only be between a man and a woman. Their statement of faith, I read it, is almost identical to ours on this point. This got out on Twitter or X. People began, as you can imagine, to spew the most hateful speech about the people there. I mean, they were all but calling for them to be thrown into the ghettos before being killed. The day before, they didn't even know the school existed. They don't even know anyone there personally. But the thought that some student or professor might believe something that stands in opposition to what they support, they hate them. Why? I think there are a couple reasons. Perhaps the most obvious, sometimes our beliefs necessarily limit what others might think are freedoms. We don't think that people should be able to kill their infants or mutilate children. We don't support pedophilia. That impinges, it impinges on what some people view to be a right or freedom. Okay? Christians who battle against chattel slavery set themselves up against others who thought it was right. Okay, that's obvious. It brings us into a clash. It brings hostility. I think there's probably something more discreet but equally subversive here. The church's distinct moral character reminds the world that judgment is coming. That there is a law. That there is right and wrong. That there is a lawgiver. That we are accountable to him. Paul writes about it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. For to God, we are the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. 
To some, we are the aroma of death leading to death, but to others, an aroma of life leading to life. When you don't partake in what the world partakes in, when you don't celebrate the same sin, people smell the aroma of death that leads to death. Your distinct character brings with it the conviction of sin and the reminder that judgment awaits two things the world wants to suppress. Think about it. Let's say you got saved and you stopped getting drunk with your coworkers. Your coworker asks you why you're not getting drunk anymore. You say, oh, because I'm a Christian. We live in the South. They might say, so you're saying I'm not a Christian? Or maybe they ask you, why can't Christians get drunk? You try to explain as best you can, you know, that God has given us clarity about the things that are best for our lives and the things that aren't. This is rebellion against him. It's not good for us. It dishonors him. Okay, so you're saying that I'm sinning? You see, the world won't love you if you oppose the things that it loves. Even if you do so internally, the world responds in hate. Hate that issues forth in persecution. Jesus gives us a couple of examples of what that could look like. If you look down at verse 2 of chapter 16, Jesus says they will ban you from the synagogues. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering service to God. You might think of Stephen being stoned in Acts chapter 7 for what they thought was blasphemy. Jesus is saying that when it becomes clear to the world that you are not of the world... Maybe because you won't join in some activity, you won't sign some statement, you won't use the world's words, you won't endorse a sin or a lie. Jesus is saying they're going to hurt you, they're going to persecute you, they will hate you. Sometimes in some places, we might say maybe especially where Satan has such sway, it's looked like Christians being kicked out of certain institutions. The family, uh, the university, the workplace, the temple, a denomination. Jesus says they might even go as far as to kill you. But here's the kicker. They think they're serving God. This is why hatred towards Christians is often laced with moral language. Christians in the first century were called atheists in Rome. The highest persecutor of Christians in the world, apart from North Korea, are Muslim countries. Christians in our culture today are lambasted as bigots. It's moral, religious language. You see, Satan has craftily designed things so that those who rebel against the things of God are the virtuous ones. They're the courageous ones. Those who aim to be faithful to God's word are oppressive and hateful. Now, no doubt, Christians, some Christians in the past have been oppressive and hateful. This is not what Jesus calls us to. He calls us to be a people of love, people who are loved by God, who obey the command to love one another, which looks like laying down our lives for the good of each other as defined by God. But the world doesn't want God's goods. The world hates God. Okay, it's not hard to see why so many of our friends have fallen away or are starting to fall away from Jesus as the heat is being turned up. As the world, as an entire system, moral order that's ruled by Satan is turned against them. They feel the pressure of being opposed. It feels like you're doing something wrong. John Chrysostom preached in the fourth century, you ought not to be troubled because you are now hated, but only if you should be loved by the world. 
Don't be alarmed if the world hates you. Be alarmed if it loves you. To be loved by the world is to not be abiding in the love of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, does the world love you or hate you? Is your life marked by any kind of opposition from the world? If not, why? Now, we don't live in first century Rome where persecution against Christians was fierce. We don't live in modern day Afghanistan or China or India. I know of Christians and pastors and missionaries who have been targets of physical violence, attempted murder, and death in all three places. And yet the more that our culture openly turns away from Christian morals, the more that it celebrates what is rebellion against God, the more we will stand out. The more we'll be hated. The more we'll be persecuted. Jesus wants you to know right now what you've signed up for. He's told us, verse 1, so that when it comes, you won't stumble. What does stumbling look like in the face of persecution? It looks like falling away from Christ. It's verse 2. The world's saying, we'll kick you out of our institutions. We'll take your body. We'll take your money. We'll take your kids. And you responding by saying, tell me what I need to do so that that doesn't happen. Jesus says that's to make the wrong choice. Matthew 10, 28. Don't fear those who kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. The stakes couldn't be any higher. The choices couldn't be any clearer. Love that comes from the world or love that comes from God. A short and comfortable life here or eternal life in heaven. You can't have both. Temptation one is to turn away from Jesus or to modify him, to make him the kind of Jesus that the world loves. This is not the kind of Jesus that can save. The second temptation will be to just be as quiet as possible. To be what some people call a secret Christian, which is really an oxymoron. To think that we can somehow serve the master while not being like the master. Jesus actually gives us two gifts to ensure that it won't happen. Holy Spirit and persecution. This brings us to the third reason why the world hates us, our message. The world hates us because of our message. Even more clearly than our morals, it tells the world what they don't want to hear. That there is a creator, that we stand accountable to him, that we have transgressed his law, that we are guilty, that there is nothing that we can do to save ourselves that they are without excuse. This, of course, is not the whole message. It's not close to it, but it's central to the message. You cannot get to the good news of the gospel apart from preaching the bad news. This is why they hated Jesus. We see this in verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now they have no excuse for their sin. The one who hates me also hates my father. If I had not done the works among them that no one else had done, they would not be guilty of sin. Now they have seen and hated both me and my father. Maybe a little difficult to understand. Jesus is not saying that if he had not come, no one would be guilty of any sin. Okay, think about it. If Jesus' goal is to save us from the guilt of our sin, 
but him coming to us makes us guilty. <laughs> I'm sure he would have just stayed, okay? It's like someone coming to you and telling you, I am here to save you from the bomb on my chest. You, <laughs> you should not have come here. <laughs> Jesus is speaking about the sin of unbelief. Paul is clear, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul is clear, Romans 3.19, the whole world is subject to God's judgment. Paul is clear, Romans 1.20, all are without excuse. Jesus is speaking about the sin of unbelief. It's because of this one sin, Augustine says, that all their other sins remain. They are doubly guilty now, doubly without excuse. The gospel is the one means by which their sins could have been acquitted. They had already sinned against God, the creator and judge, and now in him coming to them, they have also sinned against God, the savior. They are doubly guilty. They are doubly without excuse. Jesus has done works among them that no one else has done. He has spoken to them with such clarity that there can be no doubt he is God's son come to make a way to God. He's spoken with such clarity that they hate both him and father. Hey, Jesus gets at a lot of this back in John chapter 3. I'm going to read a bit of text there, beginning in verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned. We already stand under condemnation. We've given up our only means of salvation if we don't believe. Anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. The world hated Jesus because Jesus exposed their evil deeds. But he did this, John three seventeen, not to condemn the world but to save the world. The gospel begins with the hard news that we have rebelled against God that we are spiritually dead and heading for further death, it does this so that we can turn to the wonderfully good news that God loves us still. That God so loves us that he became a man to die for us. That he has risen from the grave to secure life forever. That he gives it all to us as a gift. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian Jesus is offering you his life and his love today. It was while you still hated him that he died for you. In love, he gave himself up so that you could live forever, and he gives it to you as a gift. We would encourage you to stay after it and talk about any one of us about the gospel. I would encourage you to look around as we're singing during our last song. Why would we hear, I don't know, a 50-minute sermon about how the world hates us? and then respond by singing praises to God. How do you explain that? We have been recipients of the love of God. That is how we explain it. You see, the gospel exposes sin to show us we need a savior, and then it provides that savior. Jesus spoke a message that resulted in the salvation of many, yes, but it also drew the hatred of most. You cannot preach Christ without preaching the cross. And to preach Christ crucified, Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 1, is to put forth a stumbling block. The only way to preach a gospel that doesn't cause stumbling or hostility is to take the gospel and to gut it of the cross. 
to remove any notion of sin and guilt and wrath and justice and repentance. It's to take Christ without his work. It's to present a gospel to people who need to be saved, but you're giving them a gospel that cannot save. Christ always comes with his cross. It's why our message invites hostility. But Jesus preaches this to save us. Jesus has not stopped preaching today. He speaks by the Spirit and through the church. Verse 26, Jesus says, When the counselor comes, the one I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. Verse 27, you also will testify because you have been with me from the beginning. The Spirit's message is to magnify, to testify to the Son, to teach people the truth about Jesus Christ so that sinners would believe. The disciples are sent forth to do the same thing. We are sent forth to do the same thing. This is why when the Spirit falls in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it makes us Christ's witnesses from here to the ends of the earth. The Spirit's mission is to testify to Jesus, to help us understand Jesus, to give us the courage to speak about Jesus, the words to say about Jesus. The Spirit can't not speak about Jesus. It's why he's come. Brothers and sisters, the Spirit has not made your heart his home because he needed a place to live. He's come here to conform us to the image of the Son, to seal us for coming glory, to bond us to Jesus, to guide us as we walk to heaven, to fill us with peace in a hostile world, and to empower us for the same mission of testifying to Christ. Okay, a Christian who never preaches the gospel is like a kink in a hose restraining the Spirit's message and mission to testify to Christ to the ends of the earth. The Spirit in you longs to testify to the good news about Jesus. That He is the Lamb of God who has taken away the sin of the world. That He is God from God revealing the way back to God. That He both is and has life. And yet died for sins. And has risen from the grave so that we can live forever. The Spirit has brought into your heart the most wonderful message that can be heard. Brothers and sisters, are you attuned to the Spirit's pressing and leading when you're around your non-Christian friends and family? The Spirit wants to testify to Jesus through you. You're not near them by accident. To give you just a clear application, is there someone this week that you could take the softball that is Christmas, the t-ball that is Christmas, and share the gospel with them. Do you really think that God became a man? Like, why would he do that? What do you think he was doing on the cross? Do you think there's any other way that we could be forgiven of our sins? Is there someone, a family member, a friend, a coworker, a neighbor? You could even invite someone to church I think if we were honest about what most keeps us from preaching the gospel, it's not lack of know-how. It's that we dread the idea of being hated. It's the fear of man. It's the idea that our loved ones could turn against us, that our bosses could oppose us, that our neighbors could think we're weird. 
Okay, Peter knows this, the one whom we just heard about in Acts and in 1 Peter. Peter feared this when he denied Jesus three times to a servant girl. What changed by Acts chapter 2 when to thousands of people Peter is telling them that they are guilty of murdering the Messiah? The Holy Spirit is the difference, right? The comforter, the counselor, the advocate, the teacher of truth, the spirit of holiness and adoption. He has given us all that we need in him and in his word and bonded us to his people that we might take the message forth. Brothers and sisters, I would encourage you to embrace what is already true about you. You have been chosen out of the world. Embrace what's already true about you. The world hates you. If they got to know you better, they'd only hate you more. The reason they don't hate us is often because we withhold what's most important about us, Jesus. Embrace what's true. You've not been given a spirit of fear or timidity, but one of power, of love, of self-control. Embrace what's true. The world may hate you, but God loves you. He knows all about you, and he loves you. He's made you a partaker in all that is Christ's. His love, his joy, his wisdom, his message, his suffering. God has given you the gift of the Holy Spirit in part so that you will join him in his work. This is God's embassy. You are his ambassadors. The Spirit has been given to you so that God would testify to the world. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us. We plead, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. What's the good news we preach? He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Father sent the Son, the Father and Son send the Spirit. The Spirit sends us without leaving us that we might testify to God, so that God through us might reconcile the world to him. We preach a message of love. God treated his son as sin so that we could become his righteousness. But because it reveals God and his cross, because it exposes us to our sin and the judgment that awaits, it stirs up hatred. It will happen. Jesus warns us now. But when we are hated, we're comforted knowing that Jesus is our king, that this world is not our home, that we have been called into the service of the one who saved us. Sharing in his suffering is a privilege. Let's pray. God, we pray 